The next question, Tom, comes from Graham in Australia. And he says, um, Tom, what is the difference between consciousness and the mind? And if the mind is physical, also the things that we remember every day, where are we accessing them from? I know we spoke about this in one of our our interviews that uh, mentioned conscious computers and uh, our individuality. That's on your YouTube channel. But um, did I read that well enough for yeah, you? Yeah, okay. The, the first question, the first question about what's the difference between consciousness and the mind, you know, it's a choice of metaphor. It's, a, it's a, just a choice of term. Depends on how you want to define each one of those. Uh, a lot of people use them interchangeably. They can talk about their mind or about their consciousness or, uh, you know, so I, I don't know that there's a fundamental difference. Different groups may use them as different metaphors. They may have the conscious means, you know, is, is this metaphor and the mind will be some other metaphor. But that's just linguistics. You know, that's that's just, you know, how do we define words and how do we use them? Everybody doesn't define them and use them the same way. So many people may have a specific boundary between those two. I do not. You know, mind is the is the place of thought, right? Thought's the place of choice. Choice is the place of consciousness. Uh, that all seems to me like it's kind of, um, you know, what do we? You know, they all mean about the same thing. So I don't think there's a big, I don't make any distinction there between mind and, and consciousness. You know, some people might, might make a distinction like mind is the IUOC and, well, consciousness is the IUOC and mind's the free will awareness unit, but I don't see any point in making that sort of a, that sort of a distinction. It doesn't seem to buy you very much. They're just different functions of consciousness. I'd rather see, the consciousness is one thing with different functions rather than have a bunch of different things with different functions. It's it's a little more unnecessarily complicated if you have to have different things with different functions. It's all uh, it's all consciousness. Um, so what was the other part? Was there another part to that question? The things we think about every day. Where are we accessing these things from? Okay, that's that's memory. Okay, where is our memory? Okay, the memory is in consciousness. The memory is not in the brain. The brain remembers nothing, processes nothing, stores nothing. The brain is not even there in your avatar unless somebody cuts your head open. The brain doesn't have to be rendered at all. Everybody that you see walking around, unless you see them in a hospital bed with their skull opened, you know, doesn't necessarily even have a brain. There's a virtual body with a virtual brain. And the virtual brain just sits there and, and is a placeholder for that function of consciousness okay, that remembers and processes. So all of that's going on in consciousness, not in the physical system. Okay, look at your look at your Sims character. Does your Sims character have a brain? What does your Sims character remember? 
Well, your Sims character gets in arguments, uh, you know, makes all sorts of choices. That because a Sims character has a brain and does your Sims character breathe with lungs and does the Sims character need oxygen? No, no, no. The Sims character is a virtual character. It's a virtual being. Virtual beings don't need brains or lungs or oxygen or any of that stuff. They just need to be a pretty picture that we can look at to show us what's going on, what what the interactions and actions are. Well, we're the same way. We're an avatar. I mean, our body is an avatar. We are consciousness. We're the player. In your Sims character, you're the one that has the memory of what your Sims character did and why your Sims character did it. That's where the Sims character's memories are. They're in the player. Our memories are all in the player. The player is our consciousness, our free will awareness unit, which is just a subset of the individuated unit of consciousness. That's where the thinking is. That's where the analysis is. That's where the storage is. That's where the fears are. That's where everything is that's mental, that's mind, that's consciousness. It's all at consciousness. The avatar is a pretty picture on a screen or a pretty little bubble here in this, this reality. It's just a virtual thing. It's a computed thing. Okay. So that's where the, that's where the memories are. All of that's in consciousness. Brain is not necessary. And I guess one way to kind of make a, a physical uh, uh, statement that supports that point is that if you Google boy with no brains or girl with no brains, either one, if you Google that, it'll take you, if you search a little bit, to a to the site where somebody has studied. I don't remember the names. I, one of my talks I gave the name of the author and the, you know, the book and that sort of thing, but I don't remember that now. But you will find some research that was done on people with no brains. What happened is these people had encephalitis when they were in the womb and very young. That means that in where the brain cavity was, it was full of fluid, spinal fluid filled up the brain cavity. Because the brain cavity was full of fluid, there was no room for the brain to generate. So the brain never generated. What they have is a little brain lining, sometimes about, uh, you know, a quarter of an inch thick all around the inside of their skull. That was the only place that brain matter could form, was right attached to a very thin, thin layer of brain attached to the skull. So they've got this quarter inch thick brain that's kind of spread all over their skull, and they have a brain stem because that takes place outside the skull, and that takes place, you know, down here in the back of the neck, uh, base of the base of the head sort of thing. So they have a brain stem and this little uh, film of brain around inside their skull. And when these people were found out very young, like by, um, what do we have now? The uh, um, sound scans that they do, okay, with infants and so on. And they found out, oh, so sorry, your baby, you know, doesn't have a brain, has encephalitis, and they're going to be very severely mentally retarded. And in that case, what happens is they are born and they're very severely mentally retarded because they don't have a brain. But on those cases where nobody actually noticed and nobody did a sonogram or anything like that, and that child is born and you find out that the child's now working on his PhD in mathematics, you know, at Cambridge, and he's doing just fine. He has a wife and three kids, and he's living a perfectly normal, high-functioning, better-than-average IQ life. 
And then he has a car accident someplace, and because he has a headache, they give him a, a, a you know a CAT scan in his head, and they find out that it doesn't have a brain in there, except this little thin thin film around the brain stem and a thin film. So all that cognitive area of doing that mathematics, which is all up in that cerebrum, you know, that, that area up here in the forehead where we do that abstract thinking, it doesn't exist. But he's a mathematician just the same and a pretty good one. So you can find that research. And I think what happened there, you know, so that's just, I just offer that up as, as a little piece of anecdotal information of, you know, where is that information stored? It's not stored in your brain. The brain doesn't do anything. It's just a virtual brain. You see? So how did that happen? Well, I think the larger consciousness system said, well, because nobody knows that there's not a brain, and it's not really in the best interest of this person or the family or anybody else that this person be very mentally retarded, then let's just go ahead and let them be let them connect with the conscious in the, in the same way that we would if there was a brain in there. The avatar doesn't really need a brain. All that brain, all that function that we think the brain does is really done in consciousness. So even though that is a violation of the rule set, right? The rule set says that shouldn't happen, but the system can on occasion cheat and do things outside the rule set. Okay. The rule set says somebody without a brain should be mentally retarded. System can say, yeah, but nobody knows. So nobody will ever actually find a discrepancy. So it isn't a, isn't a problem. And that way I don't create the, create other problems that might take place in this family or something else. And then when the, when the person is, you know, 23 years old, 24 years old in graduate school doing really well, this car accident may not have been an entirely uh, random thing either. The system may have set that up and whispered in the ear of the hospital people, said, you ought to give that guy a CAT scan just so that they would find out that there wasn't any brain in there. Oh, hey, look, you don't really need a brain. How is that possible? What about all that neuroscience that says, here's where your hearing is and here's where your vision is and here's where your thought is and here's the part that makes you aggressive and here's the part that makes you this and that, you don't have any of those. Yet, he's a normal person leading a normal life, like I say, except he's high-functioning. He's got an IQ of 125, doing graduate math and doing fine. So I think the system gives us those little, you know, little kicks, little pushes sometimes just to open up our mind and let us say, oh, well, what does this mean? Well, I guess most physiologists and doctors would look at that and they'd say, well, that's just weird. Let's go on. You know, sort of like they do with the double slit experiment. Uh, weird science. Let's just go on. Nobody will ever understand that. It's just one of those flukes. They happen sometimes. Move on. They just basically deny it and go on. But if you have a little deeper thinking process, you realize it means something. <laughs> it's something it's telling you there. That a person can be a high-functioning mathematician and not have a brain. What does that mean? It's possible. It's been seen, and there's not just one case of it in the world. This guy studied it, and he had a dozen people like that. So anyway, that's at least uh, kind of one of those hard facts that you can look at 
that validates this idea that this is a virtual reality and that sometimes the system breaks those, breaks its own rules, violates its rule set, lets this happen, and then at the end gives us a little glimpse into a larger reality when we see something like that. Lets us know that what we think is true really isn't. That's what the double slit experiment did. It told us what we thought was true really isn't. So that's the same with this. It's just one of those little nudges we get along the way that helps us see the bigger picture. So that's about the brain, you know, and our science thinks that brain creates consciousness because if the world is, is materialistic, then everything must have a material cause in the world. And since consciousness obviously exists in the world, then consciousness must have a material cause. Therefore, the brain must make it somehow. That somehow defines the hard problem because nobody's ever found a clue as to how that might happen. It seems to be rather impossible that you can take a physical system and generate a consciousness from it. So that, that hard problem is hard because actually it doesn't work that way. You see, it's not a physical reality. Consciousness is fundamental and the body is an avatar. It's a virtual reality. So it's just, when you see it from a virtual reality, then all these strange things like people without brains and double slit, double slit uh, experiments, they all make sense. If you're a materialist, none of that makes sense. Well, which is better? You know, uh, an overall theory of reality that makes sense or one that has a whole lot of stuff in it that doesn't make sense. I think that's kind of the, the one that the, uh, the kind of what drove me to do the stuff that I was doing. You know, my reality didn't make sense and I wanted it to make sense. And I expect most of you here probably in that same, that same boat. You're looking for something deeper than just a material explanation for things. Okay. Um, the next question comes from MPT Forum. Using humor as a tool to gain courage and reduce fear, what is the most powerful weapon against fear in existence? Well, courage, perhaps, but how can I gain courage? It's very difficult for people who are very fearful. I think there must be a tool that can help you to gain courage, and I think this tool is humor. Humor is the most powerful weapon against fear. You can make every fear go away if you find something hilarious about it. Very helpful property is creativity because you have to be creative to find something hilarious about your fears. <coughs> this is funny because it reminds me of Harry Potter and the, and the spell of uh, Ridiculoso where they turn something <laughs> fearful monster into something really goofy. So uh, that sort of reminds me of that. What do you think about that, Tom? Well, I think, you know, he's got a good point, but it's not quite the way he says. You can, you can use humor to kind of break the, the, the catch that fear has on you. You know, if you're, if you're fearful and fear's got you in its grip, humor can help you loosen that grip. You still have to have courage you know, to go forward, but the humor can kind of take the, 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 uh, the teeth out of the fear, if you will, for a while. You don't want, you know, you don't want to pretend to be fearless. You can shove fear down and go function anyway. And that really is what courage is all about. 
courage is not so much not having fear. Courage is about going forward anyway, doing what you need to do, doing what you know is right, even when you are fearful of doing that. That's really the definition of, of courage. If, uh, if you don't have any fear at all, then you probably don't need any courage. You know, the courage is, is, doesn't mean anything to you. So courage is a thing you, you need to have when you have fear. And it doesn't erase the fear. It just lets you deal with the fear in a productive way. So you know you have to go this way anyway because it's the right thing to do. And even though it's a, it may be a, a terrible end that you see, you do it anyway because it's right. You don't run from it. You stand up and do what you know is right. So that's really what courage is. It's, it's, a, it's a way of dealing with fear where it's still productive. Now, where we have problems is when we we think we're dealing with fear and we're not, or we we're we're pretending to have courage when we don't. And what happens there is that we often get ourselves in over our head. You know, that's the person who says something like, "Well, I'm not a fear of water," you know, and they jump in the deep end when they can't swim. That's somebody who's trying to be, maybe he's trying to show off to other people, you know, how brave he is or something, but he's just pretending. He's really terrified and he doesn't have the terror, he doesn't have the terror under control and then moving forward intelligently. He's got the, the, the terror pushed down and he's pretending he's not terrorized and then he does something and it all falls apart. In other words, the, the, the courage suddenly evaporates because it wasn't really courage in the first place. He was just pretending that he had courage, forcing himself. And sometimes humor can take you down that path where you can kind of uh, get yourself psyched up to do something, but not really psyched up to have the courage, but to do it anyway. And then the fear blossoms right in the middle of what it is you're trying to do. And then everything, everything goes bad, you know, after that. Whereas if you have courage, everything doesn't go bad. You you understand the situation. You understand what might happen. You accept that, and you're going to go ahead anyhow. If it's just you are pretending to have courage, you don't really accept it. You're just going to go ahead anyhow because you you feel like you should or that other people are watching or that, uh, you know, you don't want to seem like you're a coward. or So you have some kind of thing you make up, and then you do it. And then the fear explodes and everything's worse than it would have been if you just hadn't done it. So real courage doesn't leave you in the lurch like that. Pretend courage will always leave you in the lurch. Now, can you find that real courage through humor? Sure, you can. Anything that will help you break the the grasp of fear will help you find another more reasonable space to function in. And sometimes humor can do that. So people have different personalities require different tools. Tom, Guillaume has another question he'd like to ask you. Go ahead, Guillaume. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to have a second question. Um, I'm just uh, wondering about something uh, you often talk about. Uh, you, often talk, you often talk about evolving at the being level and not in technology intellectually uh, mm-hmm. uh, make choice that doesn't really affect the growth 
uh, of your consciousness towards love. So uh, my question is, can you kind of, uh, when you intellectually know the the rule of the system, uh, if you kind of fake it till you make it, I think mm -hmm. uh, the, this expression can uh, really resume what I'm thinking about right now. So uh, can you just fake it till you make it? <laughs> yeah, you can. And that can be a very handy tool. Let's say you want to be more kind, more giving. Okay. So you can't just say, well, I'm going to be more kind. All right. I'm more kind now. You know, that doesn't work. That's only in your intellect. You haven't really changed yourself yet. So you decide to fake it until you make it, which means you look for places in which you can be kind. And when you find those situations, then you go act kindly. But you're doing this from the intellect. Oh, there's somebody needs some help. All right, I'll go help him because I'm trying to be kind. If that then changes from trying to be kind, an intellectual thing, into actually being kind, where you just do those things because that's what you do, because that's who you are, not because you're trying to do something, because you already are kind. You just are kind is a different thing. If you make that transition, then faking it until you make it is a good idea, a good strategy. If, on the other hand, you fake it and never make it, that's not a good strategy. You see, you just fake it and fake it, and pretty soon you believe that you make it, that you've made it, and you convince all kind of other people that you're really kind. So all your neighbors and all your friends and your coworkers and everybody, because every time they see you, you're helping somebody do something. You're just the kindest guy around. And they all really think you're kind. And now you've got this image to live up to. So now you particularly, you know, make an effort to be kind. But you never actually make the transition to being kind. It's just acting. Well, what happens is that eventually that acting wears thin. You get tired of that acting. And it becomes a burden. And something will happen where you forget to act something where your emotions, you know, well up in you very quickly and you forget that you need to act because people are watching and you do something that really isn't kind at all and everybody's taken aback by it and then you're ashamed and you, you know, feel like, oh, you blew your image. So the difference between being level and intellectual level is the intellectual level is where your image is. That's the acting. You're an actor. Being level is where that's just what you are. You're kind to people because when you see somebody that needs help, you just want to help them. Not because you're trying to be kind, but you just are that way. You just help people. And you don't even think about it. It's not a should I do that or should I not. It just you do what you do because that's who you are is the difference. So one is image and the other is real. So what's at your being level is the real you. What's at your intellectual level could be a reflection of the real you, but also could just be a reflection of nothing more than your image. You see, so it's risky to just act kind, you know, to fake it until you make it. You have to be very aware that you don't fake it until you convince yourself or until you believe that you are, but you're really not. These beliefs are, are tricky things. You can You can convince yourself that you're kind. You can believe it. 
And you can convince a lot of other people too, but then you're really not. And it will always show in the end. Images will always, you know, you're always going to get trapped in that image. Eventually, the reality shows through. And if you're so, if you're not really kind, but you continually act kind, then you turn into one of these people that says, well, how come nobody ever does anything for me? I do everything for everybody else. I'm constantly giving and doing things for anybody else, and nobody gives anything to me. Man, that's unfair, you see. Now, that is somebody who is pretending to be kind, but isn't. They're doing all these things for other people, but they're doing it with the idea that they should get back something for it. It's not giving at all. It's a trade. They have this image of themselves as being kind, and they get upset because other people don't give them that that kindness back, and they feel like they're being ripped off because here they're being kind to others, and others aren't being kind to them. Unfair, not nice, you see. So that's the kind of trap you get into. So if you're doing this fake it till you make it, make sure you don't end up with a big ego that believes that it is kind, but in his private moments is, you know, wallowing around in self-pity because he doesn't get all the wonderful things that he gives. So it's a, it's one, yeah, it's a good strategy if you, if you can use it, but be careful it doesn't backfire. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, the problem is that when you want to believe, believe something, it's real easy to believe it. <laughs> so if you really want to believe that you're kind, that makes you feel good, then it's a very easy thing for you to fall into. It's a belief that's just waiting there for you to grasp it. Uh, if I can say something more, uh, sometimes uh, you have some reflection time before acting. So sometimes uh, I will talk about myself. I'm just asking to myself, uh, what will be the um, the best choice to um, mm -hmm. care about other people and just not make that choice like for me? So um, mm -hmm. uh, that's what I'm talking about when maybe yeah. I choose the way that I could um, help more people than just help myself. But I'm thinking, oh, it's uh, intellectually uh, no, no see, there's two, there's, there's two, yeah, there's two different approaches there. One approach is I'm trying to do the best choice I can. And in order to do that, I want to think about what it is I'm doing. I think about what I'm doing and then I consider what is the best choice? What's the low entropy choice here? All right. That is your intellect. True. But that's also you and your intellect wanting to grow up, wanting to make better choices. So that's a good thing to do. Now you're on the right path. But if what you're thinking is, I'd really like other people to see me as being kind. I'd really like to be known that I'm kind. I'd like to have the image of being kind. I'd like others to to uh, say, boy, that guy, he's really a nice guy. Because that's the kind of image that I'd like. See, now that's going down the wrong path. It's the wrong reason. So when you're doing that, you are using your intellect, but it's for the right reason. I want to make the best choice. Good reason. Think about it. Let your intellect help. And that's the path where it will turn into being kind. Because that's your whole point. Your intention 
is to be a person who makes good choices. And you can't do that without thinking about it. You can't just say, okay, I have this intention to make good choices, but I'll just do whatever I feel like. You know, you do have to think about what you're doing and why you're doing it. That's part of the growth. So the intellect is a, is a tool there that you can use. The intellect can also a tool, be a tool that you can use to fool yourself. So <clears throat> don't throw away the intellect because it might fool you. Just be clear on what it is you're trying to do and why you're trying to do it. All right. What you're trying to do is, is grow up, be kind. Why are you trying to do that? So people will like you. You see, that's not a good, it's not a good reason why. So that you can grow up and be better. Ah, very good reason why. So it's not so much the action that's important. It's the intention behind the action that's important. So if your intention is good, by all means, take that intellect and use it as a tool for that good intention. If your intention is not so good, all that intellect is going to do is convince you of something that's probably not true. See, that's the difference. So it's not like throw the intellect away because you can't trust it. The intellect's a really good thing. But it's the intention that that intellect is working toward. That's what's really important, that that intention be good quality intention. So if you got the intention right, don't be afraid to employ your intellect. Intellect is a good tool. How can we be sure that uh, our intention is not like uh, fear-based or ego-based choice? You know what I mean? Could I you do. just talk a bit about that? Yeah. You can't ever be sure. There's no way to be certain. What you have to do is do the best you can and see how it works. Be, you know, be skeptical. <coughs> Always. <laughs> So you can say, well, I'm doing this, and I think it's because I want to grow up. But, you know, maybe, maybe there's part of me that likes to grow up, and there's another part of me that really like other people to like me and think I'm kind. And maybe you have both of those things going on in your head. So maybe you're going to put a little energy in both directions. Well, you just do the best you can, use the tools you've got, and see how it works. Look at yourself. You know, take a good assessment of yourself uh, six months later and see. Are you different or you just have a, a slicker image? And if you can't tell, well, then keep going. Then six months later after that, assess it again. Eventually, you'll know because things will happen and you will realize that you're just doing what you're doing because that's the way you are rather than because your intellect is saying it. it's what I should do. <clears throat> so you never know. You just have to do what you can and be aware of what you're doing. Ask other people. <clears throat> Sometimes they can see changes in you more than you can see in yourself. So it's not a, it's not a given. You can't say, Oh, okay, I'm going down this path. And because of this, this and this, then I'm really doing it right. Mostly we do things and we're putting some energy that's not particularly useful into some things. And at the same time, putting useful energy in in different ways. So if a part of you would like to have friends who think you're a really wonderful person and part of you really wants to be a wonderful person, that's okay. You know, you don't have to, it's not an either or a one or a zero. You can be a mixed bag of, of things. You just want that part that really wants to grow up to actually do some growing up. 
if 90% of you is really interested in growing up, you'll grow up faster than if only 20% of you is really interested in growing up. But you'll probably grow up in either case. One will just do it a lot quicker than the other. So it's cut and dry. This is from Titi in Sweden, and she asks, I get lost when reflecting on the nature of love and fear. Maybe you can help. Another fear question. Is it love that motivates us to evolve, or is it even the driving force of all evolution? Is it love that we are at the core in our IUOCs, but in various quality levels without fears? Are the fears created in our free will awareness unit as a consequence of evolutionary inherited survival patterns, along with those fears we develop when we grow up in a family, for instance? We could maybe take those one at a time, but I think in general, um, I will say that that um, you know some people have this. It's it's different metaphors that people use to explain similar things. Some people will say that actually you are love inside. You're you're completely you're completely done. You're perfect as it is inside. You're totally love. Now you just need to get rid of the fear and let the love shine. Okay, and and I don't particularly take that path, but that's one way of saying a similar thing, and that is that, you know, you are who you are. You're a mixed bag. You've got some love. You've got some fear. You've got beliefs, and if you get rid of the fear, what's left is love. Now, those two ways you can kind of look at it as just different ways of expressing a similar thing. Okay. But I I um, I don't say that you're 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 you are total love inside, but you've got this somehow this outside shell of nastiness about you that's keeping the love hidden. That I think is not a good model. I think better is model is that you are just a mixed bag of all of it of love and fear and so on. And when you no longer have any fear, what's left is love. That's because you're talking about a, a love and fear. It's a, it's a binary. You know, if you're not a one, you're a zero. There's only two states that you can exist in. You're a one or a zero. Then if you're not a one, you must be a zero. So it's like that. So the fear is the thing that causes all the problems. It's the fear that causes the belief. It's the fear that feeds the ego. It's the fear that's the negative side. And if there is no negative side, then what's left is all positive. There isn't a neutral side. That's where you are now. It's not neutral. It's just mixed. There isn't a neutral side. You don't get half fear and half love, and it turns out to be something in between. It's neutral. It's not. It's half fear and it's half love. It's half good and it's half bad. It's not neutral. You get rid of all the fear, and what's left is love. Okay, so that's the way I say it. So you are who you are. You've learned up to the quality that you've learned up to this point, and you have a certain amount of ego, a certain amount of belief, a certain amount of fear, and you're trying to evolve out of that fear. As you get rid of those fears and deal with them, then you become kinder, you become nicer, you become more helpful to people, you become more empathetic more caring it's just 
the way it is once you get rid of the fears. It's the fear that prevents you from being all those things. So what are you? You're a mixture and you're trying to out, you're trying to grow up by getting rid of your fear. Now from the, from the model viewpoint, fear is high entropy. Love is low entropy. And you've probably heard me go through that, that little argument, you know, so the, the fear is all about self. Fears are self-centered, they're self-focused. And fear is, um, divisive. Being self-centered is divisive. Love is caring. It's about other. Okay. So if you have a social system, which consciousness is, and they're all helpful to each other, that social system will evolve much more quickly than one where you have an identical social system, but they're all fearful. No, if you have a lot of fear, you don't have any trust. You don't have any sharing. You, you get mutual defense packs that then you can uh, defend yourselves and you can also go and be aggressive and beat up others and take their stuff. You know, the fear, the fear play, the fear place creates a social system that's very dysfunctional. The love place, the caring place produces a social system that maximizes productivity, maximizes everybody getting, you know, having, a, having their free will, uh, uh, issues met. So if you can get rid of that fear, you move toward that, that love space. That's what's left. I think part of her question, I, I know you've answered it several times. Um, the fears are attached to our consciousness, not our free will awareness units. Yeah, you have to not think of the free will awareness unit and the, and the, and the IUOC, the individuated unit of consciousness, as two separate entities. You have to think of them as the same thing. One's just a subset of the other. So they're not two separate things. One's just a subset of the other. So yes, the, the, you know, in that process, you have a, a, an individuated unit of consciousness and it just takes a part of itself that represents its quality and calls that a free will awareness unit. And it's that subset that then is the player of the avatar. Okay. But that's still just a subset of the IUOC. And it's going to return to the IUC. That partition is going to be taken down when that avatar dies and it's going to, you know, just become a part of the, that same IUOC again. So yeah, the fear, like everything, like the, like the brain, you know, when we said that uh, all the, all the memory and all the thinking and all the analysis is all done in consciousness. Well, so is the fear in consciousness. That avatar is just a, a you know, eye candy for us to look at. It's a pretty picture. Let us see what, what our choices are, are doing and the consequences of those choices. So yes, all that fear is in the consciousness. And so now you have a free will awareness unit that's a piece of that IUOC and it's now experiencing and it's learning and it's growing and it's getting rid of its fear. All right. Now you don't have to necessarily wait for that avatar to die before that, that, uh, those lessons learned go back to the, to the IUOC. It's not like that, that free will awareness unit is such an individual thing that the individual, you know, the free will awareness unit's now a little lower entropy than its host consciousness, the IUOC. Think of them all as one thing. <clears throat> There's just a partition there that says this much memory, this much processing power. It's going to be used just to be the player. 
It's that sort of thing. So don't differentiate those two. So the fear is in consciousness, just like the memory is in consciousness. The avatar is just a computation. Thank you, Tom. That's that's very clear. Uh, one more question from the one of the participants who couldn't be here today, from Tyrol. Uh, basically, he's asking, does experience in exploring the larger consciousness system make death easier? Oh, I think it does for most people. <clears throat> I don't know that it's necessary, but I think it does. If you've if you explore the larger conscious system and what a lot of people call out of body, which is really not out of your body at all, but it's just exploring consciousness, you you get a bigger picture. As you get a bigger picture of reality and you realize that you are consciousness, not an avatar, then the idea of your avatar dying becomes so what? You know, it's just not that important. Just like when you're playing that video game, when you're playing your elf and he's running around, you know, fighting giants and wizards and whoever the bad guys are in your game, then your avatar gets killed. Well, that's not really a big thing in your game because you just go back and get another one or you reconstitute that one. So you kind of have that same attitude. That's because you as the player have the bigger picture. You don't see yourself as the avatar. You see yourself as the player. You see, you identify with the player, not the avatar. So when you are identifying with the avatar, then death is, a, is the end. It's like a horrible thing. It stops your gameplay. You're out of play. Never play again. It's the last game you'll ever play. You know, you're, everything's over then. So then that becomes a big scary thing because you've got the little picture view of the avatar. Once you have the view of the consciousness, the avatar dying is, you know, of course that happens. That's a part of life. You know, you live for a while. The rule set says that your body wears out, you're going to die, and then you get to start over again with all the things, good things you've learned, and you don't have to take any of the, the beliefs and, and fears and other crud that you were dealing with there don't have to come with you, at least not per se. The level of fear that animates your being, yep, that's still a part of you. Hopefully it's less this time after this thing but uh yeah we're not uh you know don't think the don't think of the uh of yourself as an avatar if you identify with your body then you're fearful about death if you don't identify with your body and you identify with consciousness then you're not so a lot of experience wandering around in the larger consciousness system and understanding the difference between an avatar and consciousness makes death not that big a step, not that big a deal. It's not all that consequential. Okay, we'll start another chapter in the book. And it's not a fearful thing at all. So sure it does. All right, thank you. Um, next question from the MBT forum that, that's carried over from <clears throat> previous. Uh, Tom, how does shape-shifting work in non-physical reality with MBT? I have heard of people having out-of-body experiences with their friends, and they will change their appearance, and the other person reports seeing exactly what they intended to look like. Does this work because everything is connected and the image the person desires to appear uh, will automatically be seen by their friend having the OBE with them? I've explored this a little bit, but I was curious 
as to what you think about it. Yes, remember, it's all consciousness and it's all information. So there is nothing other than information. So if you and your friend are out of body together or sharing dreams or whatever, and your friend decides that he's going to change, you know, into something else, he's going to be a, you know, 10 feet tall and three heads, that's information that he has to send to you. That's information you get from him. There is no thing that's 10 feet tall with three heads. All that's just information. You're just information. Your avatar is information. Consciousness is an information system. So there aren't really entities there who are shape-shifting as there are consciousnesses there who are sending and receiving different kinds of information. And if your friend sends you this information, look, I'm 10 feet tall, I have three heads, and you're tuned into that, then you get that information, then that's what you'll interpret it as. Or you may not. Let's say that's such a bizarre thing that you don't interpret it that way. It's just too bizarre. It's too out of your reality, 10 feet tall with three heads. Instead, you may just see some big gorilla-like thing that's really big and scary. Maybe that's your interpretation of his 10 feet tall and three heads. And what you'll see is, well, I didn't see that. I saw you as a big gorilla. It's just an interpretation. Information sent, information received, information interpreted. That's what you see. What is What creates your reality, your own individual personal reality, is your interpretation of the data you receive. Period. Nothing else. So there aren't really... You know, there's nothing actual happening in reality in our interaction with others except we're passing information back and forth. When we join a virtual reality, that information we pass back and forth has to abide by the rule set of the virtual reality because we're logged on to that and every, all the information that we are in the game has to abide by that rule set. That's really the, the deal you make when you log on is that you'll abide by the rule set of that reality. So you log on to World of Warcraft and your elf can't flap his arms and fly because that's not part of the rule set in that game. So you have to interact in ways that are within the rule set. But it's still nothing but information. All right, thank you. Next question from the MBT forum. Um, how can people who are living life through MBT and trying to grow into love help you, Tom? Help you out bringing these ideas out to the mainstream and into and general knowledge. Oh, what a nice question. I have to thank the person that asked that question. What a nice question. Um, well, you know, basically, you know, for the very f most fundamental thing, what they can do is keep on growing. You know, don't rest on your laurels. Keep on growing. Let your light shine because you are, you are part of the solution as you grow up. And make those good choices. Be social, interact with lots of people. Let them let them experience what it's like to interact with somebody with a low quality, you know, with a with a low uh, entropy, a high quality of consciousness. That's good. So just keep keep going, keep working on it, keep becoming, keep being. So that's the biggest thing that they can do. But as far as helping me specifically, doing things that I'm doing, well, I can think of a few things. One, when I when this when this, uh, um, what is it, 60, 
62nd, is it, or 61st, uh, Fireside Chat goes up or whatever it is. When it goes up, there'll be lots and lots of comments. And all the videos that I put up, whether it's something that just Don and I do or it's a, it's a podcast I have with somebody, they all go up. And when they go up, there's very quickly 20 or 30 comments. And within some months, there's, you know, hundreds of comments on those videos. <clears throat> it would be a big help. Those people that have grown up some and have some understanding, if they would go help those people by, you know, answering their, their, their questions and their videos. It's more than I can handle. I can't answer all those questions on all those videos that keep coming in. You know, I get hundreds of those every day. I can't answer them. But sometimes, not all the time, but even half the time, there are people who say, oh, well, I think it's like this. Maybe if you think of it this way and this way, maybe that'll help. And most of the time, it does help. So people helping other people, I think, is good. And and if you go to the to the uh, things that go up on YouTube and try to be helpful to the other people who just don't understand it. Now, if I tell you that, then I also have to tell you that if you run into a troll, feeding trolls is not helpful. You don't want to feed the trolls. But you can interact with trolls. You just can't feed them. Now, what does that mean? That means if you interact with them, and it's good to interact with them in this way. If they're saying stuff that's just, you know, nonsense baloney and they're being negative because that's the definition of a troll, right? That's what trolls do. Then it's a good thing to interact with them, but interact with them only in a positive way. Well, I think you've misunderstood, you know, what was being said. What was being said was this, this, and this, and that's because of this and the other thing. And, of course, the troll will come back and say, oh, you're so stupid. What an idiot you are to believe all that. And what you do is then you take his and say, well, this and this makes sense. And you actually haven't said anything yet, you know, logical about why you've just given us your opinion. Why do you feel that way? What are the issues that make you, you know, where's your logic to come to that place? You see, and they may come back and insult you some more. But as long as you stay on an intelligent level, of interacting without getting sucked into the argument. You see, that's what feeds trolls. If you get sucked into their argument, if you start calling names back, if you get angry, if you get upset, and so on, now you're feeding the trolls, which is exactly what they want. That's that's what makes trolls happy, is to get somebody sucked into their diatribe. That's what sets their, their light on. So don't do that. Don't feed them. But by all means, do take them to task. Do ask for their, you know, for their information and what they base that on. And do point out to them, you know, how you understand it. But always stay intelligent. Always stay positive. Never feed a troll. And if you do that, what it does is it takes all the wind out of their sails. And they tuck their tail between their legs and, and you know, and they go away. Whereas if you feed them by arguing with them, or telling them that they're stupid, all you're doing is pouring gasoline on that fire. And it just then takes up a lot of space. And I'd like to have the questions there be real questions so that the questions themselves become a learning place. People have questions, they get some answers. Now you got something that's really a useful content 
that as people watch that video, they can actually learn more by going to the questions. That, to me, is a useful thing, rather than either not saying anything at all or filling, you know, two-thirds of all the questions up with troll nonsense and, and belligerence and, you know, name-calling. And all that does is obscure any real valuable information that might be there. It's just now people have to go hunt for the needle in the haystack of garbage. You know, there may be some nice golden needles in there, but they're hard to find with all the troll garbage that's, you know, the troll droppings that are that are left around. It's, uh, you know, it's hard to hard to dig out the needles. So I would say, yes, please go, go engage everybody. Try to answer people's questions. Try to be helpful. And if you run into a troll, stay positive, stay intelligent. And that is the way to make a troll go away or be quiet. Not by fussing with them or calling them trolls. So if we had more of you doing that, now, a lot of you will watch the video, but then you won't have any comments. You may look at the comments, but not make one. But if you took a little time to answer somebody's problem or, you know, say a few things, that would be helpful in producing something really valuable for other people who watch the video. Watch the video and then read the questions. You know, you get, you get another whole set of information and different viewpoints. And you don't have to know everything. You know, can't say, well, I've been doing this for years and I know everything, so listen to me. You don't have that. You can just say, well, here's my opinion. Here's what I think. Or this is what I get out of it. And just be open and uh, treat. So that's one way you can give back is just help make my videos a richer learning experience by adding your own learning experience to it and your own insights. And again, it doesn't matter so much whether what you say is perfect or not perfect or flawed or not. It's yours. It's the way you feel about it, and that's valuable because there's going to be other people who's going to feel just like you do, and they're going to have that same thing. And then somebody else will write and comment on your comment, and somebody else will comment on both those comments. And it doesn't mean everybody that comments needs to have a perfect understanding. Just all you need is the is whatever understanding you've got, as long as it's positive, and and uh, you know and rational then it's welcome. Right or wrong isn't the point. Positive and rational. That's the point. So that's one thing that you could do. Another thing you could do would be to join the group of people who are volunteers with uh, Vanessa. Um, you can probably run into Vanessa someplace. I've done some interviews with Vanessa. She lives in Vancouver. And uh, she's put together groups of volunteers to do different things that are valuable uh, in the MBT world. And one of the things she's doing is looking at all the videos that are in, uh, uh, that are in YouTube. What? Thousands of them, thousands of hours of videos and trying to, to uh, make like an index by subject of all of those and make it searchable. So if what you're really interested in is past lives, you can go into her her software and write in past lives, and it'll tell you from the most, you know, from where it's mentioned most to where it's mentioned just maybe in passing, a whole list of places you can find in this video. Go to this video by clicking on this link and go to, you know, 53 minutes and 27 seconds, and you'll get 
me talking about past lives. So in that way, it's sorted out by subject so that you can basically research the subjects of your choice without having to listen through hundreds of hours of video to catch that that nugget that you're looking for, you see. So <clears throat> that's just something that volunteers are doing. And there's other things like that. So she has five or six volunteer projects going on all the time, and it's basically trying to make MBT more accessible and more understandable. There's some people working on MBT for children. Uh, that was a good project. Try to get some of the MBT concepts so that they're, they're good for, you know, 10, 11 and 12 year olds or 13, 14 and 15 year olds. So, you know, if you have time to, if you're interested in projects like that, then you can volunteer and, and start being part of that, of that situation. So like I say, she has a bunch. She's kind of the go-to person to, to organize um, various things. And if you have your own idea of something you'd like to work on, well, start your own group there. I'm sure Vanessa would be glad to find help you find other volunteers that want to work on your project. So there are things you can do that you can be part of the MBT movement by contributing your own your own uh, work. You know, Frank, who's sitting over here, been asking questions today. He's done that. You know, he's put together something that meant something to him. He was looking at all this stuff and saying, boy, it sure would be nice if this was all put together in a way that I could more easily understand the content and, and see, you know, what the content was that's there. So he's, he's putting together a, uh, I think, um, what's turning into either a, a very large book or a series of books of things that will help readers get through MBT content in a little different way than reading my books. And that's great. So when anybody comes up with an idea like that, I'm always encouraging, yes, go do it. And, you know, if you work on it for a while and lose interest, well, that's okay, too. You'll probably learn something while you worked on it for a while. But if you work on it for a while until you produce a product, wow, that's great. You know, it's, it's, your, it's your own vision, your own understanding of what's important and what you learned and what, and what would be good for other people to see. It's your own viewpoint. And if there's a hundred other viewpoints out there about what MBT is and what it looks like from different perspectives, I think that's wonderful. More viewpoints, the better. Because people will connect with one viewpoint and just can't connect with another one. So if there's hundreds of different viewpoints, so if you've got a something that you'd like to contribute, contribute it. Make a video. There's only one rule, and that is you speak for yourself. You don't speak for me. You know, and as long as when you write whatever you write, it's yours, and you claim it, and you, you know, you don't confuse people with, it's not what, you know, it's, it's your, it's yours, not mine. You need to take credit for yours, and, uh, you give me credit for mine, and if we do, if we keep those two things straight, then that's really the only rule that, that there is. Create anything you want. You can, get in contact with me and see if I've got any suggestions or whatever, and I'll try to work with you as I have time. But time is a, is a problem for me. I don't have a whole lot of it, but, but uh, I'll try to be helpful if you get some project you want to do. So yeah, there's a lot of things that you might do in the MBT world that would be, that would be helpful, be useful to other people. Well, thank you. All of that was good information and helpful for everyone, I hope. 
Uh, we'll wrap up this 60-second fireside chat. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, everyone, for attending. Uh, great questions. I'm, I have held back some of the MBT forum questions for next time. There's some really interesting ones. Thank you for submitting those. Yes, thank you, everybody. I'm glad you come, all your listeners out there. Thank you very much, too. Thank you, Justin, for doing the editing and putting all these things out. Somebody told me you've caught up with us. You're not behind anymore. You're right up there where we are. I caught up. That's, in fact, I just this morning I uploaded the, the last one, so I caught up, you know, 30 minutes ago or three hours ago, whatever it is. Yeah, now you're behind again already. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, thank you very much, Justin, and thank you, Oliver, yeah. for making it possible and putting it all together, and all of you who came. And oh, Some people <laughs> ask me, how do I get onto the Fireside Chat? How do I get to ask a question? Well, you need to send Donna, our, our uh, host, a letter. You can find her at mbteevents.com, or you can talk with Oliver. Either one of those, uh, you know, you'll get to Oliver sooner or later anyway, even if you start with Donna, because Oliver's the guy who handles all the, all the uh, logon processes. But anyway, get in touch with Donna, and uh, she will uh, talk to you about it, and uh, she'll pass it on to Oliver. And you just get added. And I think, Oliver, we can go up to what, like as many as 20 people? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, the software is gonna can handle a lot more than we've got. So um, it can get a, to be a bigger group. It doesn't have to stay just this size. And you can get on the, with the group without a picture. If you don't have a camera, then a microphone is all you need. Uh, you can stay on the sidelines without the picture and still ask questions. So um, it's open. This uh, fireside chat is not meant to be exclusive. We'd like to keep it. Uh, we'd like to keep the questions such that everybody can learn from them, because this is something that's going to go out to lots of people. So we don't want it to get just personal, so much personal things. Uh, it can be personal in the sense of my own personal growth and how do I do this and how do I get past this block I'm having in meditation. That kind of personal stuff is good because that's what everybody else is interested to, and it's, you know, that shared personal stuff, if you like. But uh, we don't want it to get too individual and such that everybody else is rolling their eyes waiting for you to get done because what you're saying only can apply to you. Those sorts of questions we'd like not to have here because that's not a good forum for it. But as long as there are questions that other people also have, and as you've known, we've got a lot of questions here, and some of them are personal things. But it's personal stuff that everybody has and things everybody goes through. Lots of people go through. So when I answer it for one person, that really triggers it for another thousand people who are in the same spot and had the same question. So those kinds of things are the kinds of questions we want. It's about growth. It's about caring. It's about evolving. And as long as it's about that, then you're right on, right on the, the money here. So please step up, join us.